Welcome to the Edge Podcast, an inside look at business strategy, design leadership, and innovation from experts across different industries who are actually doing it. I'm Ross Chapman, and I'm a designer and strategist at Etch, a radical consultancy. And this week, we're speaking to Dana Publikova. Dana runs Tiny Pinata, a thought partner for changemakers stuck in the grind, based out of Greensboro, North Carolina. And her experience spans the industries of publishing, healthcare, media, advertising, textiles, transportation, including nonprofits and high-level education. She has run empathetic research studies for diverse groups that include young asthmatics, homebound elderly patients, third shift manufacturing workers, police officers, and first year teachers. Dana has worked with teams all over the US and in France, China, India, and the UK. She is trained with Google, IDEO, Design Sprint Academy, Stanford D School, and AJN Smart. And outside of work, Dana is a true crime watching, book loving twin mum who believes Saturday night is best spent paired programming with her husband. And her first book, Empathy at Scale, is out soon. Dana, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So awesome to speak to you today. And I've had a kind of first view at your upcoming book, and I'm really excited by it. How, how are you feeling about that? Incredibly nervous. Um, once you write something and you work so hard on it, you know, it's this beautiful idea in your head and then it's an outline on paper and then it's an actual book. And up until that point, it's just you and you're reading it and you're feeling these things about it. And now you put it out into the world and other people are having feelings about it and saying things about it. And it's very vulnerable and exciting at the same time. So can empathy be scaled and why have you written a book about it i certainly hope it can be scaled in my experience empathy traditionally tends to be a one-to-one exchange so for instance i'm working with you and i want to empathize with you personally ross and hoping that you empathize personally with me so that we can find some common ground and work together well and meet each other's needs and goals. But in designing a service that is going to be experienced and participated in by um, hundreds or potentially thousands or millions of people, there's not one singular persona you can empathize with. We create these marketing personas, these user personas, and we, we, ha- we have Paul, the publisher, or Mary, the accountant, and we personify this piece of paper and we learn all these things about them and we talk directly to them with our messaging, but they're just representing one viewpoint. And what I'm trying to do with empathetic research and my empathy studies is try to find multiple personalities and almost a group of people, a common audience that has, that they may experience the product or the service in different ways. So what I'm trying to accomplish with a larger scale empathy study is to find all of the little uh, nuances and personalities and opinions and experiences and weave a tapestry of that data. So we don't just have Mary or Paul, we have this team and this team and, you know, 50, 60 different people. We find the best case scenario for all of those people and hope that for all of those people, the problem is adequately solved and the experience is positive. How did you 
get to an understanding of this is important. No one's really talking about it. I need to put my experience and thoughts together in in a format such as this. I think the best example of empathy at scale would be inside an organization. You have a human resources department who is building a an experience for everyone company-wide to participate in. And so, you know, the CEO has health insurance, the manufacturing workers have health insurance, the marketing team has health insurance. But the way they experience those benefits is going to be completely different. And so when designing that program, Human Resources probably has one particular instance in mind. And while there will be adaptations for how certain people experience it, it's just a blanket experience. Mm. So when trying to empathize at scale, I think the best example of that experience is inside an organization. There are teams in, internally, like a human resources team, who is trying to develop a service or an experience company-wide. So everyone at the company will be experiencing that. But because it's not an external product for an external customer, there's really no market research. There's really no customer research. There's no user persona in the room. What I'm encouraging organizations to do is to see their employees as users, as customers. So to do empathy-based research, to make sure that the programs they're developing will actually be participated in by the employees. Um, Making sure that they're interesting, they're of interest, they are of benefit. So many times I've seen these internal initiatives, uh, specifically with when it comes to innovation labs and internal innovation programs, you're asking employees to, on top of their already overloaded work week, come up with new ideas that are going to change the course of the company and create new revenue streams. You're, you're putting out a request for ideas. You're putting out a huge ask. You're asking people to come up with their million dollar idea, but you're not equipping them with the tools to do that. You're not, you're not giving them an environment conducive to creation and you're not really giving them the space to think freely. Hmm. So by designing programs with the people in mind, treating your employees as users, you do a little bit of research. You'd find out what's important to them. What's important to your employees may not be what's important to another company's employees. Yeah. If you were designing a benefits program, for instance, um, if you wanted them to say you want the whole company to lose weight, that's going to help you on your insurance premiums. I know that's not a problem you guys have over there, but Mm -hmm. we definitely, (laughs) we pay a lot for insurance. So your employees might really appreciate a discount on those insurance premiums for every percentage weight lost. But another company, that might not be as effective. Yeah, and and you talk about the example of onboarding and that that really took took me down a, a journey where you were talking really about the realistic expectations of what that, situation could be and you asked the the five whys in that situation could could you tell me a bit about how how you navigate those conversations because what i what i got from that essentially the story is 
there, there were problems with onboarding and your kind of uh, view was, well, let's understand the problem. We've got the users in front of us and why don't we get to a conclusion as to what the real situation is? So how, how do you how do you navigate those kind of conversations? They're really difficult conversations to have. Often when I'm working with a client, the person who has created the broken or non-functioning situation is in the room. So it's mm. very difficult not to say, well, this is wrong. It's broken. It's not working. It was a terrible idea in the first place. So instead, I like to be really encouraging about what's working right now. And perhaps the situation was the answer with the resources available at the time. But let's explore the possibility that we're all in this room because we need a new solution. And let's all work on it together. Let's take what we've learned from this perhaps non-functioning solution and see what we can apply that toward to create something better that works for everyone. And it takes asking those hard questions, asking those five whys. Well, why isn't, why isn't it working? Why have we always done it this way? Those are really difficult questions to hear. And I think getting people to feel vulnerable and safe and creating this environment where they can be open to saying, wow, that isn't working or wow, you're right. We need to change having those realizations and, and seeing those emotional responses in a place where we're kind of encouraged not to show emotion. The workplace is a, is a dead zone for emotions, but if we're all going to be replaced by robots eventually, we have to use the advantage we have, right? And that's emotional intelligence. What what I, I took from that example was it, it was about empathizing with new hires more than you would see on face value. So you talked about how they, they've been in a hot room looking at a projector for, for too long. Uh, you, you talked about whether they were engaged in the process, whether this was just something the company felt like they needed to do, but they weren't really doing the measuring and the learning side of it. Is it just a case of asking those open questions or are there other things that teams need to use as a as a as a starting point to say this is how we're going to uncover the problem to be solved rather than just tactically going well let's just redesign a new process i'm a huge believer in the idea that you can't think your way out of a problem if you close your team in a room, probably a hot room, for a mm -hmm. long period of time fueled by carbs and sugar, you're not going to just come up with the answer. If you could have done that, you would have by now. I think sometimes empathy for the user is not going to come from looking at a poster with your persona on it. I think sometimes people need a little more of a deep dive experience. And so in this particular example with the onboarding, I put the team through their own onboarding. Mm. And I asked them a before and after series of questions, gauging their knowledge and also kind of evaluating their comprehension. How much of that information did they retain? in that hot room with the projector for a full day. And that was really eye-opening for a lot of people, especially people who had been there a long time. You know, they thought they had all the answers. They knew how everything worked already. And the new information presented to them did not stick. 
that was a really interesting turning point in that conversation and in solving that problem because up until now, the onus of responsibility for retaining that knowledge had been on the new hires. Well, they're not listening. They're young. They don't care. When in reality, it was that the way the information was being presented was not conducive to being remembered. Yeah, that that has to do with retention. That has to do with why you're bringing new people in the business anyway, right. if they're not going to uh, engage with with what's going on. And the, this learning loop that, that hasn't been there uh, to, to measure that impact. So if that's your introduction to the company, that's your first experience, that's not going to be a lasting relationship. If you don't feel welcomed, if you don't feel properly onboarded or informed, and then you are, um, and then it's held against you when you don't remember the information and you start asking questions down the line, that is not something that is sustainable. That's not going to keep your employees around long term. And in this case, that was resulting in very low employee retention, uh, very high turnover rates. And that was something that we were able to fix. Other than investigating the situation as it stands and using techniques like that, how how can organizations be more empathetic? Is, is this something that happens at certain points in a product or, or service life cycle? Or is it something that has to be in the kind of day-to-day uh, grind of running a, a team within a business and how how can the these companies become more aware of, of this? I think it's a lot like design thinking. What we've learned in our field, design thinking is not just a workshop. It's not a one-time thing where you play with toys and come up with some ideas on post-its and that's it. You've done design thinking. It's more weaved into your day-to-day. It's a guiding philosophy. It's an underlying principle rather than something that you do here and there. And I think empathy is the same way. I think you open yourself up to be more empathetic by trying to understand the experience of both those who rank below you and those who rank above you in an organization and trying to find where you can change the way you work in very small but very significant ways to make a better experience for those people all around you. It's not just about making sure that your employees had a really good lunch. It's making sure that they get to eat in the first place. Something that you can overlook as a manager is perhaps overscheduling your your team's time and they may not feel they're in a place where they can come tell you, hey, you know what, we don't get to eat lunch on Thursdays because of the way you stagger these meetings. So being aware and being open to observing things like that, really trying to understand the experience of how people work, not just what their work says they've done. It's that ability to understand the feelings of of. A, a person or, or a user. We, we're one of the few industries that, that call people users. I think the other one is the drug industry. And how how can how can we understand and and have that as a frame of reference where personas may be failing? So how how can is is it just more contact with that that set of users? Is it being able to capture and keep on learning what their needs are and, and testing and, and prototyping. What what does the the empathy at scale in a tactical route 
uh, look like to some of these organizations? You just ask them. You ask them how they're feeling. You ask them about their experience and they may be really caught off guard at first if you've never done that. But the goal is to create an environment where you might not have to ask them eventually. Create a very trusting, shared experience where people feel like they can tell you how things are going and you can tell them how things are going. That authenticity, that bringing your full self to work, the saying, you know, I'm really tired today because last night my child wouldn't sleep and creating a workspace where it's okay to say that it's okay to be a parent at work. It's okay to be a human. Um, Just creating an environment where it's okay to ask and it's okay to answer. Totally. Are there some individuals either in positions or or in, in certain companies that that aren't able to be that vulnerable or feel like they can't be that open. And will they they ever see the, the light or will they ever start to empathize? Or is that just a a type of persona that won't won't be able to use this as a, a tool for good? I think this is where the issue gets a little more gendered. I think moms in the workplace are at a bit of a disadvantage as compared to dads and people without children. I've been in the room where someone was interviewed and when they left the room, it, it was a woman being interviewed. Someone asked, well, yeah, but how long before she leaves us to have a baby? And just that that was even broached as a subject was horrifying. It's very Mm. sad. Um, The fact that you can't talk about your children at work because it's seen as a sign of weakness. And, you know, there's a double standard where a man could and should talk about his children at work. And in my personal opinion, I think the most feminist thing that a man in the workplace can do right now is to talk openly about being a parent. And as he helps to shift that workload in his home, take on some more of the responsibilities, take some of the doctor's appointments, go pick up some of the sick children. I think maternity leave and paternity leave is a very similar issue. And again, I know this is something that's a cultural difference in the UK and here, but you know, I had almost six weeks. I had just under six weeks of maternity leave for twins. I think I should have had 12 weeks, two babies, yeah. double the time. Um, but there are people who have access to maternity leave and don't take it. I think mm. Melissa Mayer, she was back in the office, what, 72 hours later working. And that sends a message too. As a woman in power, you have a responsibility to show women who are not yet in power or those who don't even plan to be in power that it's okay to be a mom at work. And as a father, you have a responsibility to the women and to the men below you to show that it's okay to be a father, taking paternity leave, showing people that it's okay to have a sick child and miss a day of work so that people aren't struggling and and women and mothers specifically aren't struggling to keep up with these standards that are just impossible to meet. Yeah, it's it's a ideology that's been hammered home that you have to be present, you have to be on time. And it's not of the reality of how us as humans work. I've never understood the, in the UK, we have children finish school at 3.30 and work finishes at 5.30 or 6. The same here. What 
what's supposed to happen in that gap? Are we all supposed to be able to uh, afford support between that time? Right. That they're, they're, they're just not aligned. And in the 80s, you know, you're you're in my time, we were just latchkey kids. We could just hang out at home from 3.30 to 5.30 waiting for our parents. Can't do that now. Yeah, it's 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 a little it's a little off and it feels like it, it, it is a problem to be solved and maybe a, something to be redesigned. Right. I know with brand new startups and, and new businesses, you've started a new business, you can set these principles early and keep account of them and it is the norm from day one. Can legacy companies change? Because, you know, culture is the hardest thing to change. But surely over the long term, it's going to be the thing that keeps these companies in business and grow. Absolutely. I think building a culture where, say, there's equal maternity and paternity leave, for instance, that's your competitive advantage. And as the unemployment rate is, I think it's the lowest it's been, certainly in my lifetime over here in the US, I'm not sure what it is there. Companies have a responsibility now to create a workplace where people want to be and where people can be human and where they can be parents. Millennials are now dominating the workforce. The Xennials or Gen Xers are coming up right behind us. I think they're now well into their 20s working now. And they have an expectation of work-life balance that, say, Gen Xers and the baby boomers ahead of them didn't have. It was foreign. It was, you know, show up, do your job, go home. So I think if a company wants to be in business 10 years from now and they want employees at that business 10 years from now, they need to start making changes immediately. They need to create a competitive, appealing workplace with benefits that people actually want. And big ships turn very slowly. It's very hard to institute change, especially top-down change. But I think when companies come from a place of authenticity and from, again, empathy, to overuse the word, a sense of feeling and a place of humanity, when they speak to their employees and they say, we have realized the benefits we have in place are not working, we are going to work to improve those for you. That kind of humility, that that humble place of speech is really difficult for companies who are um, who are in the pattern and habit of not owning mistakes and, and glossing over them and, and kind of avoiding anything that sounds negative. It's a very difficult paradigm shift for companies to wrap their heads around and what they need to do is realize that they are a company of human beings. They have human beings working for them and speaking to those people like human beings is the most effective way to communicate with them. One of the kind of tactics or the the quickest, easiest things to do that you mentioned is about redesigning meetings with empathy. There, there's always a proliferation of, of meetings. I, I remember that meme where it was like, are you are you lonely? Are you wanting some interaction? Hey, hold a me- meeting. <laughs> what What is it about how you can redesign that time and the expectation of that meeting and... I mean, are are meetings still relevant in 2020 going forwards and and what are they best suited towards? First of all, I feel like a lot of people assume I'm anti-meeting. I am not anti-meeting. I love meetings. 
I am an extrovert and I love to interact with people and I absolutely love to go to a meeting. That said, I don't like to sit in a windowless, airless room while skipping a meal and listening to information I don't need. And I don't think any of us do. And yet, that is how we spend most of our working time. That means we scramble home, we get dinner on the table, we get the kids in the bed, and then we do our actual work in the makeup hours. I think meetings as a whole are broken and I think they can absolutely be fixed. I think empathy is the key to fixing those meetings. If I don't want to sit through it, I wouldn't put somebody else through it. I, it reminds me of that um, Jeff Bezos uh, quote that was all about how if, if you're getting no value from a meeting, walk out of it. PowerPoints are, are banned, start with silence. And it is something that we weren't taught at school, but you need to design the time. And that, that's where, you know, John Zaratsky and, and Jake Knapp's work kind of helps a little bit in terms of time is something that can be designed. You need to design it best. And there needs to be clear purpose and clear direction. And you use this time effectively. I kind of shy away from meetings. I only use them where we need to decide together or, or work together. Any other time, it can be done in a different way. But I, I totally get that most people's, apart from myself, most people's calendar is meeting after meeting and that time can be used best. And what you're talking about is kind of designing it for the human, understanding that there is a group of people around you and we need to make sure that everyone is getting something out of this shared time and it's not just a hey look what I've done I'm going to share it to you and I'm going to feel good about it. it it needs to be redesigned absolutely one of the things that I've had clients do is actually take the salaries of all of the people they're inviting to the room and yes. calculate the hourly rate of that meeting and assigning that numerical value to it is mind-blowing it's a big big shift yeah yeah I created this quiz, which you can find for free on my website, plug. Should it be a meeting? Should it be a meeting at all? Could it be an email? Most of the time, especially when you're assigning a high numerical value to it, it could be an email. And the argument people have is, well, people won't read the email. They will if they know there won't be a meeting about it. They'll read the email. Yeah. You can train people in your new method of meetings. And that's what the meetings chapter is all about in Empathy at Scale. It's about how to teach other people and reset their expectations of what a meeting should be. When you're looking at empathizing with users, an important kind of principle within that is being able to trust and be trusted. And with the teams that you work with, how do you enable that uh, happen and and what can you do what can each person do to show their team that you can be trusted and i i know that some uh people say well trust isn't earned it's given you just need to start by enabling trust within your team a, a few years ago they used to be called soft factors or or soft skills but they are, skills, yeah. so, they are so important nowadays and probably more important than those harder skills that can actually be learned through an online course or, or just getting started with a bit of code or a, a bit of theory. So 
how how important do you see that trusting your team helps empathize with the the situation and the the customer that you're trying to provide for that's a great question i think empathy and trust are so intertwined because it takes vulnerability to be empathetic and it takes trust to be vulnerable as an outside consultant as a contractor coming into these companies i'm already not trusted it usually takes me um, small wins working myself up to be trusted with a bigger project. For people to trust each other on their own teams requires vulnerability on both sides. And not everybody is a mushy, feely, touchy, emotional person. But being able to sense that and to understand like this person isn't a hugger, for instance. And you should always ask, by the way, are you a hugger? But this person isn't a hugger. They're not going to emote all over me. But I can, by getting to know them, understand that they're feeling uncomfortable here or they're feeling happy or they're feeling sad or disappointed. You know, not everyone is going to present emotions in exactly the same way. And it's important to get to know people to understand what information they're putting out into the world and perceive it the way that it should be understood. Yeah. To trust someone above you as a leader requires them to, again, create an environment where they feel they can be authentic and vulnerable with you and to lead by example by sharing information they would hope you would feel safe in sharing. Creating that security, that safe place of empathy exchange. Yeah, being able to deliver what they promised or being able to take a team and take them somewhere and and be able to see the value of that journey and it's it's essentially rewriting the rule book on how we come to work what we do at work yes exactly it's where we spend most of our time of our lives and it's super interesting that it's it's only got to 2020 and now we're looking at the the common thing about this is that with the new opportunities we have we can decide to work here or we can work somewhere else if, especially if you're in the digital space we can work here or we could work uh in the office over the street the frequency of job hopping is increasing you certainly don't have a job for life anymore and it it just feels like the tables have been turned and it's actually the employees in charge rather than the companies that they come to work with. And that's why I can see that the conversations that you have and the the general conversation on the web is more about that employee experience. And that's why we're spending all this time designing it in a way that people can thrive rather than a top-down approach that where the top isn't in control or on understanding what they need to do to help other people perform. The the metrics still stand. You still need to deliver and engage and perform and uh and have those kind of those discovery points, but it does feel like the balance has been tipped more in the employee's favor or the the customer's favor. So many inquiries I get start with we want to be human centered. And it's because the power has been put more to the user rather than the business 
in their situation. Right. The marketplace is flooded. We have options. If we don't like the way this product experiences, we'll go to a competitor. And that exchange of power in the workplace that you're talking about, that's what I'm trying to help people realize. I'm trying to help the mid-level managers, the people in their 30s and their 40s, they're maybe 15 years into their career, understand the real power they have both to change things for themselves and to change things company-wide. Change is not going to come from the top down. That's a very old belief, and that's something that I'm just not seeing anymore. And realistically, it's not going to come from the bottom up. It's going to spread from that middle layer. Those are the people that have the most power to change. Those are the people I'm calling the change makers, and those are the people I'm trying to help. Because if they can do their jobs better, they can change their entire organization. So good. So when is the book coming out? I've had a sneak preview. It looks amazing. I can't wait for more people to see it, share it, and and give you all the kind of feedback and reviews that you deserve. Thank you. What What's the next steps with that hitting the web, and uh, and how are you going to kind of share the the empathy at scale message? So the pub date is February tenth, and pre orders are going on right now. They'll be shipped prior to February tenth. After that. I hope to speak at a couple conferences this year. I have a couple on the books later this year, a couple of workshops I'm running and some on-site trainings for companies who are ready to start changing things, which is very exciting. There's nothing more rewarding than having a, a CEO or a senior leadership member contact me and say, you know, I really like what you're talking about but it's not for me. Can you come talk to my middle managers? It's that kind of humility, that kind of awareness and openness to change gets me so excited. So it'll be on Amazon and Apple Books from February the 10th. Pre-orders can be made now off the Tiny Pinata website, which I'll link in the show notes. And thank you, Dana, for sharing that. It's been great to lift the lid on how organizations can scale empathy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. 